John chapter 3, verse 1, which says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God, a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. One more time, you must be born again. And then Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, Lord Jesus, that the world would know this. That people would understand. It remains among so many of us the greatest frustration in life to know you and your grace and your love and your mercy, to recognize the offer of eternal life with you, of every possible good thing given and good things that will be given, life forever and joy everlasting. Father, we get this, we believe it, we know it, and it is so frustrating when people don't receive it. And I just pray, Father, if I can ask this for a fresh anointing on our fellowship, that our words would be spoken with the spirit and with power. That when we tell people of this truth in John 3.16, when we tell them you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, that people will hear it. I pray for cracks in hearts. I pray for the word to seep in. And I ask that we would be bold in these last days to speak your love to a world that denies it. I ask, Lord, that you will help us to keep our eyes on what is real and continue to discern between the genuine, the authentic, the real, the absolute, and the phony that is so prevalent in this world. And I pray as we go through these words together, Lord, that you will uh, restore, revive, rejuvenate our hearts as your followers. I pray that anyone who hears that this morning comes as a non-believer that this will be a seminal moment. This will be a heart change day. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So two articles caught my attention last week that are polar opposite in thought. It hit me after I read both of them. The first one was entitled, We're Probably in a Simulation. How much should that worry us? You know, I found myself pinching myself immediately. You know, is this what? It's called 
simulation hypothesis. And, and the article actually begins with the writer saying, suppose your great-grandparents, uh, maybe back in the 50s, they had uh, a headband that they came out with, that when you put the headband on, allowed you to enter into virtual reality in such a way, way, way beyond the virtual reality headsets of today, but an actual headband you could put on and enter into headband land. And then that their children and children's children and children's children's children are actually all in the simulation. And this is actually being philosophized today, considered today, thought about, the article says, simulation hypothesis, the idea, lately much discussed among technologists and philosophers, that the world around us could be a digital figment. Like the simulated world of a video game, the idea is not new. Exploring the nature of reality has been an obsession of philosophers since the time of Socrates and Plato. Ever since the Matrix world but a brain-bending new book by the philosopher David Kalmers entitled Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy has turned me, the writer says, into a hardcore simulationist. I should tell you, me is Farhad Manju. That's the writer of the article. He writes for uh, a, a, a <laughs> an online group called dnyuz.com. I should also tell you that according to mediabiasfactcheck.com, DNYUZ is an Armenian website that plagiarizes content word for word from major news sources. So, a lot of uh, veracity there. They literally copy and paste entire articles and embed their advertising code for profit. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff this is coming out of. But that was one article I read, simulation hypothesis. We are all digital figments. We're not real. That this is all just really a life video game. We're the Sims. For those of you who remember the Sims way back in the day. The second article that really caught my attention is entitled, Most Evangelicals Don't Want Short Sermons. <laughs> I like that one. I read that immediately. Paul sent it. Thank you, Paul, for sending that. I'm like, yes, amen. I'm walking around the house saying hallelujah. And Cheryl's like, what's up? And I'm, I said, listen to this. Answers in Genesis actually originally posted in a study released by Gray Matter Research and Infinity Concepts, which indicates less than one in 10 evangelical Christians want shorter sermons. That seven, it's 7% among young adult evangelicals. So we're at like in the 93%, they're, they're either content with or they want more. 30% specifically are wanting more in-depth teaching. We can do that. What does one have to do with the other? See, one is simulation. The other one is reality. It really struck me this week. One is imitation, and it's everything from virtual reality to video games to Netflix to TikTok and, and Instagram and, and all the social media. It's not real. It's not real. Everything is filters and changes and you can take pictures of yourself and send it out there and make yourself look so much better than we all know you really are. <laughs> Simulation versus reality. Imitation versus the genuine. Digital versus direct. Counterfeit versus authentic. False versus true. It's stunning to me, however, that another uh, 
statistic out there today is that in the last 10 years, non-believers in America have grown by 10%. That it is now 30% don't have any particular belief at all. 30% of Americans, that's a huge number. And I look around and from CGI in the movies to filters on our devices, you ask the question, what is really real anymore? Everything is so phony. Everything is so fake, and it sucks people into it. Because the natural man, the natural woman, is easily duped by simulation. Now, just believe stuff. Oh, well, it doesn't look so real. But Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. Why? He's looking for what's real. Is this legit? There had been false messiahs already. There had been other guys pop up before the first century, in the first century, around the time of Christ, who claimed to be the Messiah, leading people off one way or the other way. And Nicodemus is watching Jesus, and he's asking, is this legit, or is it simulation? Is this real, or is it pretend? He comes to Jesus at night, looking for the authentic, and Jesus answers him by saying, you must be born again. You must be born again. Why does Jesus answer that way? Well, if you want to be able to evaluate the true from the false, you must be born again. Wait, Rick, so you're saying born-again people actually can discern things better in the world than non-born-again people? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying it makes a born-again believer in Jesus better, but it does make that person more discerning, eyes a little wider open, more clear thinking, because we now have, the Bible tells us, the mind of Christ so we can see things as they are and understand the world as it truly is. You must be born anew. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually evaluated, spiritually understood, spiritually appraised. You can't appraise the world spiritually if you haven't been born of the Spirit. You must be born again. Now, Nick comes at night. And remember, I I told you the rabbis say nighttime is the right time to study Torah. Well, they got it from David. I didn't tell you this last week. I thought I'd throw in a couple of things as we begin that I didn't say last week. Psalm 63, verse six. David writes, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Psalm 119, 148, David again writes, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Good time to do it, to meditate undisturbed in the night watches. When do we do that? Talk about real and false. When do we pause long enough to settle down and listen up to hear what's really real? See, even as followers of Christ, we are duped in this season into giving over hours upon hours of time to the simulated, to the digital, to the false reality when we have what is real. That's part of why this meeting is still so fascinating. It's an honest, heart-to-heart conversation heart of Jesus, really spirit to man conversation that leaves Nicodemus thinking. Again, as we said last week, he walks away and we don't immediately know what his reaction was. He must have had a mind 
full of thoughts of what was told to him and processing it and continues to watch Jesus through his ministry. But this conversation is about the authentic. It's about what's true, what's real. And it also holds the greatest single statement of truth ever made, ever spoken. Now, I remind you that it's written more than half a century after it happened. That John, in writing the Gospel of John, recorded this evening encounter. And I, it's so fascinating to me. It's possible that he wrote it from memory? Possible? That he was actually there that night? Maybe John was hanging back in the shadows, listening in on the conversation. But the implication is even greater. It's more inspired. The implication is that John wasn't there. That Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. They had this personal, private, intimate conversation. And 50 plus years later, the Spirit said, John, write about this. Write about what? I want you to write about a conversation that I had with Nicodemus. And here it is. And John writes it down. It is very likely, more than likely, that Jesus and Nicodemus were all alone in this meeting, in this evening encounter, as we saw in chapter one, where Jesus and Nathaniel have a conversation that only God and Nathaniel could possibly know about. Or in chapter four, we're gonna see another conversation. Jesus and a woman of Samaria, and there's nobody else there. The apostles, which would include John, have all gone to town to get a burger, and Jesus and the Samaritan woman are left alone at the well. We get that entire conversation in chapter four. Or in chapter five, Jesus conversing with a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, yeah, John could have been around, maybe one of the others overheard, but this was a personal conversation. In chapter nine, Jesus has an intimate personal conversation with a blind man after he heals him and he's no longer blind. In chapters 18 and 19, a personal conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. In chapter 20, Jesus and Mary Magdalene have a conversation recorded in this gospel that nobody else could possibly have heard but the two of them. And yet John writes about it. In chapter 21, Simon Peter, and yes, John was there at that time, but has a conversation with Jesus that is so personal and so intimate about things that would speak to Peter's heart. This gospel is filled with the personal because that's how God comes to a person comes to you, comes to me. Again, John may have witnessed some of these, several of these he could not have, and I, it just amazes me that the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire John to bring these touching personal appointments to light so that we could listen in and hear what was discussed. An Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Or, or chapter three, verse two, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. These were not chance encounters. Or chapter four, and I love this. Don't miss this when we get there, which we may uh, Wednesday night. No, no, probably next Sunday. Chapter four, verse three. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And verse four, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Listen to this. And he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. In fact, most Jews would never pass through Samaria, avoided Samaria like the plague. But Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why? He had an appointment. He was no simulated savior. 
He had a real authentic meeting with a woman that had to happen. And God intentioned that this very personal meeting with Nicodemus be shared with us. As with all these others to, I think, get the message into our hearts. God wants to go one-on-one with you. He wants to be one-on-one with you. He wants that time with you. Those intimate conversations. Now, something else I want to quickly point out, something Eric Jensen actually came up and said to me last weekend, and it just, it struck me because I totally missed it. And if I missed it, maybe some of you did too. John chapter three, verse eight, listen to it again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Listen to me, you can't see the wind. Right? And we talked about last week, you don't see the wind, but you experience it. You see the effects of it. But notice what Jesus says specifically, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear, you hear the sound of it. You hear it. You hear it. Three ways the wind makes sounds. There's what they call aeolian sound, which is when wind passes over an object and in passing over causes a sound to happen, a whooshing sound. Or if it passes through an object, we used to have this this wind alley right between my college dorm and the communications building. The wind would just whip through there. And what we would do late at night is we'd take rolls of toilet paper and put them on a stick and put them out the window and they'd just unroll for miles and miles. (laughs) The wind just picking it up. But just rushing through there, aeolian sound. You could hear the sound of the wind. You couldn't see it, but you could hear it. And then there's shaping sound, we could call it. And that is the wind when it literally splits and divides when it comes in contact with a solid object. So if a wind comes upon, say, a pole or a tree, it splits around that. That causes sound. It actually creates what you could call a sound shape as it divides going around the object. So aeolian sound as it crosses an object, shaping sound as it divides through an object, and finally friction, which is simply objects that are running into each other, leaves, branches, things like that, and they run into each other in the wind, and that creates the sound of the wind. Listen, one way or another, the wind must make contact to be heard. It has to make contact with something. If it didn't, if there was nothing there, you would not hear the wind. But even the ground, as the wind rushes across the ground, will make sound, and that's how we can hear the sound of it. It has to make contact to be heard. What does? The wind. What is the word wind? It's pneuma. What is pneuma? Spirit. You could say the spirit makes contact to be heard. You hear the sound. The phrase here, and this is interesting to me, where when Jesus says, you hear the sound of it, it's aquas ten phonin. Aquas ten phonin, you hear the sound. But aquas ten phonin can also be translated aquas hear, listen, and phonin, voice. You hear the sound of it, or you listen to the voice of it. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying listen to the voice of the Spirit. 
The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. The argument has, has gone on for decades, if not centuries in Christianity. Can I hear God? I find it interesting that Jesus says you hear the sound of the wind. He doesn't say you see it. He doesn't say you experience it, but he does say you hear the sound of it. Listen to the voice. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Not Rick's words, God's word on the subject. Isaiah 55, verse eight, for as the rain, or verse 10, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my big fat pen. Oh no, it doesn't say that, does it? So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Listen, the word, what we call the Bible, the word of God was first spoke by God or we wouldn't have the written word of God because God spoke it and the prophets heard it and recorded. So we already have, you know, proof that God speaks and is heard by human ears. I don't know why this debate continues to do, well, you don't really hear from God. Hey, I'm not saying you hear from God every day. And I'm not saying that if you hear from God or have heard the voice of God that you're a greater person or more righteous than someone else. I'm just saying, historically speaking, people have heard God speak. Human ears, physical human ears, have heard the voice of God. Just as we hear the wind encountering various objects on earth, the spirit of God, his spirit interacts with people who believe, who learn to trust in him. The word which goes forth from my mouth, he says. Now listen to the Hebrew mind, to hear, to listen. Remember the word is? It's shh, anybody know? Hear, shema. Shema, which is to listen, to hear. It indicates comprehension with intent to obey. So listen to Jesus. Listen, hear Jesus. Comprehend this with intent to obey. John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Now you read that and someone can say, okay, I get it. Rick, I'm hearing the word right now. And you are. You just heard the words that Jesus originally spoke and then I just repeated. So you've heard it audibly with your ears, right? Keep going. Uh, John chapter five, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Now Jesus is talking literally, but I also wonder if spiritually. Because before I gave my life to Jesus, I was dead. And in my dead state, I heard I heard enough that it sparked faith. I didn't hear audibly at that time, but I heard the word. I heard Jesus and faith came into my heart. And then he says in verse 26, just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave to him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. If dead bodies in the tomb can hear the voice of God, can a living person? 
Verse 37 of John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him in whom he sent. This is a faith issue. Lord, I want to hear you. And I want that hearing to direct my life. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 43, to the deaf Pharisees, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. And they heard audibly, but they didn't get it. They were deaf to the spiritual truth. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus says. And he doesn't qualify that. He doesn't say, my sheep hear my voice. You know, when the other sheep talk to them, they, that's, they're, they're hearing my, you know, when they read my word, that's when they're hearing. No, he says, my sheep hear my voice. He says in John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine. It's the fathers who sent me. John 18, 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Don't get all weird on me because I know some of you are gonna go, maybe I just don't hear truth because I've never audibly heard God. Stay with me. Revelation 2, 7, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I love that he says it that way. I've told you before, he doesn't say let him who has two ears. All you need is one just one ear and Jesus says listen up the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear the sound of it and he's talking about the spirit those who are born of the spirit those who are born again if you want to hear Jesus the first thing you have to do is be born again you will not hear him until you're born again You must be born again. And then, listen, go to him. Go to him in the morning, at noon, at night. Go to him, pursue him, and listen. And here's how. Listen in prayer. Listen in prayer. And that can be alone or with the saints. I love praying in groups because you hear the Lord in ways you don't hear him when you're all by yourself. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there, Jesus says. And so we pray together to hear him. And we pray alone, like Nick, at night with Jesus alone to hear him. We go to hear him in prayer. We listen, yes, by his word. Which is why it is so vital that we are in his word day in and day out, moving through the Bible together and alone taking in his word, listening by his word, because his word will attune your ears to his voice. You come to be able to hear him better, to know it's him speaking into your heart, or even I believe into your ears, because you're in the word and you know what sounds like Jesus, and you know what does not. We listen in prayer. We listen by his word. We listen in worship which is why worship is so vital. And by the way, a side note on worship, not in my notes, but I gotta say this. Worship is about Jesus, and it's not about us. And we're really right now in this season trying hard to to sing songs of praise that are about the exalted Father, 
that are about worship of Jesus and not about our life issues. So if I'm not singing enough about breaking your chains, I'm sorry. But I wanna worship him that I can learn to hear him and that will break my chains and that will deal with my life issues. So worship, worship sensitizes the heart to hear the Lord. Now, the conversation will continue. Some of you will probably bring it after this morning and say, yeah, but I've never audibly, you're telling me you can audibly hear God. Are you one of those? Yes, I am. And I'm not saying it is a marker for righteousness, it is not. And I'm not saying it's a marker for intimacy. There are people who intimately know Jesus and are close to Jesus who can never claim they've ever audibly heard his voice, but they know him so well they hear him by heart constantly. Many of you, as you're praying, you hear the Lord. You get a word from the Lord. By spirit, by heart, you're hearing him. So let's not quibble over the auditory sound. I do believe you can hear the Lord Audibly, I've shared with you before, and you can think I'm a nut on this, this church would not be here if I hadn't heard God audibly because this was not my idea. And I would not have done this. Well, you hear him all the time, Rick? No, no. There was one time 18 years ago, once or twice since then that I think, <laughs> but the point is this, God is speaking and he wants us to listen up. You hear the sound of it. And that was all free. You didn't have to pay for it this morning. We're gonna go now to verse 16. John 3, 16. Because nothing tenderizes the heart to hear the Lord like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, we gotta camp out in that verse. We're gonna get down to, I think, hopefully, with time, verse 21, but we're gonna spend the bulk of our time right here. John 3, 16. I wanna unpack the first six words of this in three parts. For God so loved the world. Listen to this, for God. For God. John 3, 16 is the personal purpose behind the two previous must statements of Jesus. Get this, for God. So he's saying, because God, for God. He's moving into this, and, and, and as a result of these two, you must do this, you must do this, do this. Why? For God. The must statements are back in verse seven. You must be born again. And the second one, the son of man must be lifted up. Now, there's only one time I told you in this whole gospel where Jesus says, you must but there's more than one time where he says must, and the second must in this chapter is the Son of Man must be lifted up. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? For God. Because God. And then goes into the rest of the statement. It all begins and ends with God. That he's the point of the whole thing. What I just said about worship. He's the point of our worship. We aren't. You're not, I'm not. We don't sing campfire songs to make ourselves feel good. We sing songs of worship because it's all about him. And the more I focus on him, the more alive I am. And the more joyful I am. And my life changes because I'm focused on him. It's all about him. For God is absolutely central. 
He's the point of life. He's the point of love. He's the point of very existence. And that's no simulation. You want a real life for God. For God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. I told you recently, if we would accept that, it would change all kinds of lies and falsehoods in our lives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then at the very end, Revelation 22, verse 20, amen, come, Lord Jesus. He's at the beginning and he's at the end. And in the middle, in between, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation for God. God is central to John 3, 16. For God, the personal purpose, so loved, so loved. And so the personal purpose emerges from and results in now the profound passion. For God, so loved. It doesn't say God loved the world. Interesting how Jesus said it. God so loved the world. Hautos agapao. From the word agape, which is that unconditional love of God, but hautos, it can, it can be translated so, it can be translated in this way, in this manner. For God, in this manner, in this way, loved the world, and as the rest of the statement proves, God didn't just love, he so loved John 3.16, it's like a nuclear bomb of the love of God. It goes off and we are blown away at the intensity and the wonder that God so loved. The depth of his love. There aren't words that can explain or describe it. Paul tries. He prays for it. He says, for this reason, Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man, born again. And he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I love the statement. To know something that surpasses knowledge. To comprehend something you can't comprehend any other way but by the Spirit. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. For God so loved. And when people come along and they say, well, how could a loving God allow such pain in this world? Duh, it's precisely because he loves so much. Huh? Yeah, there's pain in the world because God loves us so much that he says, I'm gonna set you free to make a decision. I'm gonna allow you to choose to love me back. I love you, but you can choose to love me or not to. And when people choose not to love, horror and sin and violence and brutality and murder and ugliness all happens in this world. It's very simple. For God so loved. Titus chapter three, verse four says, when the kindness of God, our savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. 
He saved us. That is, when Jesus appeared, love appeared. We saw love in the flesh. We were able to see this is what love looks like in a human body. This is how love behaves. This is what love does. If the gospel declares anything that is the good news of Jesus Christ, it is that God is love. God is love. Love doesn't define him. He defines it. God defines love. God shows us what love is. We see this in Jesus. By the way, if you're having the argument with someone saying, well, how could a loving God, da, 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 how could he, you know, allow all these things? I, stop right there. Hang on a second. Do yourself a favor, and before you start evaluating justice and all of that, why don't you look at Jesus and see who he is and look at what he did and look at his final act on the cross and then tell me God doesn't love. Because in Jesus, we see the love of God profoundly for God so loved. Love is the starting point of the gospel. Love is the motive by which we then share the gospel. Why do we keep annoying people with the same message over and over? Because we love them. If someone asks you that question, how come you keep bringing up Jesus? Because I love you. <laughs> I can't not tell you about this. I love you too much. If I had the cure for cancer and you had cancer, I would tell you what the cure was. Well, that might offend me. I, you know, I mean, that's how crazy it is. Don't tell me about the cure for cancer. I'm going for chemo right now. Well, okay. But, but if you did, but if you received, but if you were born... God is love, for God so loved. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I think Christians who go out into the world and try to convince people of the gospel because we want them to be like us are clanging cymbals, crashing gongs. You ought to come to church with me because your life is messed up. Gong. For God so loved you. God so loved you. Personal purpose, profound passion. For God so loved, number three, the world. And this is peculiarly panoramic. And by the way, peculiarly is easier to write than it is to speak. Peculiarly. God's personal purpose for God and his profound passion so loved is peculiarly panoramic, the world. That is, this world. Now get this down. God so loved the world. Is there alien life on other planets? The resurgence of this interest, and it's fascinating to me, not alien life, but the resurgence of interest in it, in this idea of extraterrestrial life that we see in the media, we see it in streaming, we even see it now in the US government spending all kinds of tax dollars on researching this and looking into this and thinking about it. It's all about one thing. Listen to me on this. It's all about one thing. The devil is ramping up to a great deceit that when the rapture happens, there will be a great excuse, alien life. The aliens came and took all those Christians, got them out of our way. So thank the aliens. That's where it's going, folks. The great disappearance of followers of Jesus in the rapture of the church is going to leave people with all kinds of questions and the world's already ready for it. 
Satan's already got people geared up for the deception. Oh, yeah, it was because of alien. They finally came back and took some away. They've been doing that for years. My Uncle Ned, he went away and came back and he, well, maybe he was before he went anywhere. Full disclosure, I have not been out there. Haven't been to space, but you know what? I know somebody who has. John 1:51. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And John 3, 13, no one, Jesus says, has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So you'd think that Jesus would have noticed some extraterrestrial life somewhere if, in fact, there was some. Well, maybe he just hadn't told us about it. Jesus never even hints at life on another planet. Never even supposes. You know what he does talk about? This odd little orb. He talks about life on this planet, this peculiarly strange little planet, which by the way is unique in all the universe. And I know the universe is vast, I get it. Why is the universe so vast if we're the only planet? Because God's big. <laughs> he doesn't do stuff little. And so here we are, and yes, it is unique. I know there are other planets that are apparently like Earth, that people say maybe they're life-sustaining. Perhaps we could rocket over there someday. Have fun with that. I'm not rocketing anywhere but straight up to be with Jesus. So other planets, yes, that may look like Earth, but listen, this is the planet to which Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, this planet, which makes it unlike any other and yet we live in a generation now where people are searching and literally looking to the universe for life. I'm gonna cast my prayers out to the universe. That's great. A cosmos so cold, so impersonal, so oblivious, and so powerless to do anything for you. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. And Jesus has some amazing planetary plans just ahead. A kingdom of beauty and righteousness and perfection that will be on this planet. And when God is finally done with this planet, and he will be, we will have the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. But for now, this is peculiarly panoramic. For God so loved the world, this world. World. Now, listen to me. The word world has a lot of, has been made about this because the word world in the Greek is cosmos. And so people go, ah, ha, 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 ha. God so loved the cosmos. So there's life on other planets. Ha, gotcha. Listen up. Don't be confused. 185 times out of 186 times in the New Testament, when we see the word in the Greek, cosmos, it refers to this world. It's talking about planet Earth. It's not dealing with the universe or the galaxies out beyond us. It, 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 that word, as used in the Greek, cosmos speaks of this planet, planet Earth. Let me give you some examples of that. Matthew chapter four, verse eight. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the cosmos. But the cosmos is this world. 
Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, cosmos, and forfeit his soul? He's not talking about the universe, he's talking about this world. John chapter one, verse nine, there was the true light which coming into the cosmos, this world, enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And it's that same word. Again and again and again, referring to planet Earth. John 17, verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. What, Mars? The Martians hate Christians? The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, over and over and over, 185 times out of 186, cosmos means earth, planet earth. 185 times, what about 186, Rick? What about that one other time? Ladies, 1 Peter chapter three, verse three, your adornment must not be merely external. The word adornment is cosmos, cosmosmetics, I guess. Your cosmos, your adornment, your world, you could say, must not be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be, and by the way, he's not saying you can't do that. He's saying don't let that be the focus, TikTokers. Don't let that be the focus of your life and world, the, the, the this. No, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now I know for some, cosmetics are their cosmos, but Peter's saying, sisters, don't get hung up on the physical. God is looking at the imperishable heart. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Oh, okay, prove it, prove it. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The parallel verse to John 3.16 is 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Or as Paul said in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But listen, in John 3.16, Jesus goes from planetary panoramic, if you will, to personal at the speed of the light of the world. From planetary to personal, from the world to whoever. 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 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son this great cosmological statement and then dials it immediately down to that whoever. Some of your translations say whosoever. You can put the so in there, I'm fine with that. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, whoever, from the universal world to the solitary person. And what's so amazing about this, as he speaks one-on-one -on -one to Nicodemus, he speaks one-on-one -on -one to you this morning, saying, whoever believes. If you feel insignificant, God just called you out. God just spoke directly to you. Whoever believes, 
Again, no qualifications whatsoever. Whoever. The last person on the planet you thought would believe. Whoever believes. Jesus doesn't shout this from a cosmic podium. That if the world together might gather and believe. He shares it one to one in a quiet corner of Jerusalem at night with Nicodemus. Whoever believes in him. As he looks into Nicodemus' eyes. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. His very next appointment is, as I said earlier, one to one. With that anonymous, do you realize this? Anonymous Samaritan woman. We don't even know what her name was. We're gonna get to heaven and be looking for, hey, hey, does anyone know who the Samaritan woman is? She's like, it's me. It's gonna be something like Beatrix. I just know it. I, what's her name? Why is she anonymous? Because I am. It doesn't matter. It's not my name that saves me, it's his. And whoever believes. And, and to this anonymous, insignificant, nobody, Samaritan woman, that I guarantee no one in Judea or the rest of the world would have given a rip about, to this woman, Jesus first shares his true identity as Messiah. Whoever. Well, who's the gospel for? Whoever. Who can be saved? Whoever. Whoever believes. Jesus always makes time for the one. Always goes out of his way. This is, see, this is something, and I, I hope it's the same for you. I can tell you in my personal relationship with Jesus, one of the things I love the most is he's always there for me. No matter what's going on. No matter if I'm in the car driving down the road or sitting at home alone or, or, or here in worship with you all or at the grocery store, you know, fighting the chaos that is Safeway. Have you been there recently? It's nuts. It's just crazy people. It doesn't matter where I am or what I'm going through or what I'm feeling or what I'm dealing with in an instant. I love that I can go, Jesus, and he's there and he's listening and he's caring and he's compassionate Jesus, he always makes time for the one, always goes after the one, by the way, without respect for status or station or situation. Luke 15, verse seven, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God is calling us to the one, to the one. Keep going, keep going. I can't implore you enough and, and we were just talking this morning about this. Keep going. Keep going to the one. Why do you keep bringing up Jesus? Keep bringing up Jesus. And tell them why, because I love you too much not to. I have to tell you about Jesus. This comes from love. That's what this is all about. And this remarkable personal gift of God to whoever believes is his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him he gave his only begotten son. This, I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Only begotten, I told you before when we were studying earlier in John, it's monogenus. Monogenus is the Greek word. It means alone or unique in all existence. Son is huios. So it's monogenus huios, only begotten son. And that's why some translations say one and only but there is a sense of begottenness about the something that happened that caused him, the God-man, to be begotten. 
to, to literally become the God-man that, that Jesus is. Now, when he was born into this world, that was not the begottenness, but he was born in this world. God put on flesh and dwelt among us, but Paul says he emptied himself. Still God by nature, but emptied himself of glory, power, until at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came on him, and then he began to function as a human being like we can function as human beings with this whole, the Holy Spirit, born again. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be born again. <laughs> it's awesome if you think about it. But that's still not the begottenness, the, the, the moment of the begottenness. This phrase, only begotten, monogenus, is used by John. Well, let me just read it to you. John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory as of the monogenus, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then again in John chapter one, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The only begotten, there it is again, monogenous, second time he says it. And then here in John three sixteen, he gave his only begotten son, third time we hear it. And then in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. Fourth time that John uses it and then we will see it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John uses the phrase five times. We see monogenous five times, only begotten five times. It's the number of grace in the Bible. Jesus, the only begotten. But, but stay with me on this. So he's talking to Nicodemus. He's just shared the great John 3.16. He reveals that the love of God is in the giving of his only begotten son. And he tells this to Nicodemus. Why? Because Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. Remember Jesus called him that. You're the teacher of Israel. You don't understand these things? Nicodemus is Jerusalem's Bible answer man. And what are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that he knows the Bible that Nicodemus knows the scriptures, which is why Jesus says so much of what he says, he's pointing, he pulls stuff out of Torah, he gives stuff context that someone who knows the Bible would go, oh, 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 kind of like we do, you know, from time to time as we're studying the word, do you, do you find yourself doing that? Reading along and you go, oh wait, oh, oh, and you just want to stand up and go, I got it. I do that all the time in my office and I think the staff is a little freaked out. But Nicodemus is listening and monogenus, only begotten, is not a foreign title. It is a Jewish title. It is something Nicodemus, if he's thinking, if he's listening, has heard before. Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The begottenness of Messiah. Messiah must be begotten. Jesus says God gave his only begotten son. Nicodemus, you can almost hear, the, oh, oh, wait, wait, the, psalm, the psalmist said that. David's prophecy was that the Messiah would not, listen, would not be one of many sons, as Mormons would tell you. He's the only one. There is no other. The monogenes, monogenes huios, the only begotten son, and he's totally unique. Not one of many, just one, just Jesus. 
And when Jesus resurrected, that is when it happened. That's when he became, for all eternity, once and for all, fully glorified, the God-man unlike any other. Now, listen to me. When he walked on earth among us, he was as human as you and me. Yeah, by nature, God. No question. I'm not demeaning that or undermining that at all. But he was completely human. You would not have seen anything different. And then he was baptized, and the Spirit came on him. And just like you and me, he walked in flesh, but was also born again spiritually, as it were. In his resurrection, all that he had laid aside is now part of who he is, along with all of the humanity. There is nobody like that. There had never been before. There will never be again. There is one totally unique God-man, Jesus Christ. And we know that this happened in his resurrection because Paul tells us, Acts chapter 13, verse 32, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Wait, wait, what? In the resurrection is the begottenness. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken to you in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And he continues on teaching. But the only begottenness of Jesus in his resurrection is at the heart of our faith. Everything that we believe goes right back to that moment, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the proof of it all. It is the proof of the love. It is the proof of the power. It is the proof of the one and only son, the monogenus, the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ. No one else came from heaven, God in flesh. No one else died and resurrected, never to die again. Therefore, no one else can save you. Only Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Revelation 1.17, Jesus said, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and of Hades. John 3.16, it is the single greatest saying in all the Bible, I would add to that, in all literature, in all recorded speech. There is nothing that even comes close to this single verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Luther was right. It is the gospel in a nutshell. And listen to this. This actually comes from an unknown source. If anyone can find where this came from, I'd like to know. Breaking down John 3.16, the greatest statement in all of history. For God, the greatest giver. So loved, the greatest motive. The world, the greatest need. That he gave the greatest act. His only begotten son, the greatest gift. That whoever, the greatest invitation, believes the greatest decision, in him the greatest person, shall not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. 
for God so loved. And all I gotta do is believe that? All I gotta do is believe in him? That's right. That's right. That's all you gotta do. You can't add to or take away from it. And if you need a prayer to pray, we have one for you. Paul has one, Romans 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you can just pray that. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. And that is no simulated reality. That's no digital figment or fictional matrix. That's just real. There's nothing more true than this. Salvation, true and eternal. We gotta deal with this. What is the alternative to salvation? Perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Perish. For whoever refuses to believe in Jesus, whoever refuses the love of God given in his only begotten son, the alternative is to perish. The word is apolitai. Apolitai, which translates separation beyond ruin, beyond death or destruction. It's not just ceasing to exist, perish. It's an ongoing, continuous perishing. In fact, and, and you, you Greek scholars will love this, but apolitai is in the errorist middle subjunctive verb form. So, listen, it's important actually. Apolitai, errorist means it's ongoing, continuous perishing. Middle is the subject ruins himself or herself. They're not ruined by another, they ruin themselves. And subjunctive, subjunctive means it may or may not happen. This perishing that is ongoing, eternal, caused by the individual, may or may not happen. Well, who determines that? You do. You do. The subject, whoever does not believe, chooses the perishing. I'll put it this way, God sends no human being to hell. They send themselves. Perishing is an eternal wound that is self-inflicted. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. Praise the Lord. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the monogenes, son of God, the only begotten son of God. You're judged already. So I have no alternative, no choice. I can't change that. No, you, you can. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you stand judged. And I love how F.F. F. Bruce puts it. He, he describes it like people in an art gallery and how they judge the paintings. He puts it this way. He says, in a gallery where artistic masterpieces are on display, it is not the masterpieces, but the visitors that are on trial. They reveal, that is, the visitors' taste or lack of it, by their reactions to what they see. Two people standing in front of the Mona Lisa, one saying, what an amazing painting. The other one going, I don't get it. 
tells you more about the two people than it does about the painting. And that's what Bruce is saying. He says, the man who depreciates Christ or thinks him unworthy of his allegiance passes judgment, not on Christ, but on himself. You stand judged already. In verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and then loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's why there's pain in the world. That's why there's hurt. That's why there's heartache. The light came, but darkness hates the light because their deeds were evil. In verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why is it so many bad things happen at night? Why is it when the lights go off, that's when sin tends to emerge? Because the darkness hates the light. Darkness doesn't want to be exposed. This is full disclosure on full exposure. The fear of being discovered, of being realized as phony or fake or a simulation that my life is not really what everybody thought it was. See, that's what keeps people in their seats on a Sunday morning not coming forward to receive Jesus because they don't want people to know. That'll expose me. If I walk up there, that says I'm a sinner or, or if I'm a believer, that says I got, I got issues. And people are gonna know. Oh no, they're gonna know. Let me let you all in on a secret we already know. People are afraid and stay in the dark because there they can be unseen. There they can remain falsely covered. It's phony, it's, it's fake. Sin, I get it, sin is hard to talk about. I don't wanna sit up here and talk about my sin with y'all. In fact, you may have noticed when I talk about the dumb stuff that I do, it's usually just the dumb stuff. I don't get into the dark and the depraved. I don't think that'd be good. What goes on in this twisted little brain? <laughs> I'm kidding. I am born again. And I am one who pursues righteousness. But my friends, I still understand that sin is tough to talk about. It leads you, leaves you feeling exposed or vulnerable or helpless or like you're the only one. And you know what? That would be terrifying if we were dealing with a vengeful God. If God was hateful and spiteful and mean-spirited, I wouldn't confess my sin to him. He'd find me out and I'd be in big trouble. But God so loved. God so loved. Verse 21, Jesus ends this, this conversation by saying, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That is, it will be seen. You come to the light and the light washes out all that dark junk and it will be seen in you that when you do good things, you know that's the Lord. When you say righteous stuff, that's the spirit. God is at work in that person's life. And that's what we're invited to be a part of. Jesus said in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. It says in 12, 46, I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me, listen, will not remain in darkness. You must be born again. You must be born again. And the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is not virtual. This is not digital. This is as real as it gets. 
And I invite you this morning to come get real with Jesus.